Welcome to Global Trade Talks, brought to you by Kroll & Mori. Our hosts, Nicole Simonian and Ambassador Robert Holliman, share brief perspectives on key global issues in international trade, current events, business law, and public policy as they impact our lives. Our guest today is Sean Donnan, who's a senior writer for Bloomberg News, where he covers world trade and globalization across the organization's many platforms from TV to Business Week to magazine. He joined Bloomberg in 2018 from the Financial Times, where he served most recently as world trade editor. Prior to that, Sean was the FT's world news editor, coordinating the paper's global coverage of economics and politics. He's also worked as a correspondent and editor for the FT in Indonesia and Hong Kong, from where he edited the paper's China coverage. Sean's a graduate of Boston University. Welcome, Sean. It's so nice to have you join us today. We would love to start by learning more about you and your passion for writing on trade and global issues. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with two real pros. Look, I started writing about trade by accident. I had reached a moment in my career after several years of working as an editor at the Financial Times and editing the crisis coverage in 2008 and going all the way through the Eurozone crisis, the Arab Spring and so on, where I was offered a chance to go back to reporting. And one of the wonderful things about the Financial Times is that you often bounce back and forth between being a reporter and an editor. And, and the editor at the time, Lionel Barber, came to me and said, hey, Sean, how do you feel about writing about trade? I went out as I was thinking about this to have lunch with Martin Wolf, who's the chief economics commentator for the Financial Times. And I said, Martin, what do you think? They want me to write about trade. And he said, it would be a terrible mistake for you to do that because there's nothing going on in the world of trade. Now, I should say this was 2013. There were a few things going on in the world of trade, some negotiations happening, but it had been a fairly quiet period in comparison, certainly, to what we see now. I went back and I just ignored Martin Wolf's advice. And the reason I did that was because I was looking out at a world where the geopolitics and the economics were just in real flux. And it felt like something might be about to happen in the world of trade. At that time, it was the TPP negotiation, which was underway. And there was also some moves in the World Trade Organization. My first trip, and this was a real hardship, was to Bali to cover the ministerial conference there. And that was where they signed the trade facilitation agreement at the time. So things were starting to move in the world of trade at that time, and it just built from there. And once you dive into the world of trade, it's pretty hard to get out because it is just a really fascinating world. You must have had a crystal ball because trade has certainly been at the forefront of the political arena these last four years, keeping everybody very busy. I would love to hear where you see reporting will take you in the coming year with this new administration. Yeah, I think we're at this really interesting point in trade policy where we've had this real flood of news out of the trade world in the last four years. And for those of us who are interested in the subject, we've been spoiled in a way, although not everyone who has been watching from the trade world has necessarily been happy about some of the stuff that's been happening. But really, it's been a wonderful story to cover as a journalist. My big question going forward is whether we're going to see trade policy play the same central role in a presidential administration as it has under the Trump administration. The Biden administration clearly has some trade policy questions it's going to have to answer. 
in the first year or so, it's going to have to figure out what it wants to do with the WTO and who it wants to back as a new director general there. That's a spot that's been blocked by the Trump administration for now. There are clearly some relations to repair across the Atlantic. They've got to make a decision on whether to go ahead with a negotiation with the UK on a post-Brexit trade deal. There's a few other negotiations that are underway. But then they're going to have to answer fairly quickly this huge question, which Donald Trump started to tackle, and that is the question of the economic relationship with China. And we know that there are all these tariffs in place. We know that there was this phase one deal that still has some road to run in terms of the commitments. Phase one invites the question of, will there be a phase two negotiation? Is that the format that the Biden administration is going to approach there? The president-elect has talked about wanting to restore alliances and repair ties with allies so that you can build a coalition to take on China. How's that going to work? And how does that work if you've got your own trade disputes with the EU to resolve? So I feel like we're approaching next year cautiously thinking that maybe trade won't be the central question there. But then there are these huge questions to answer that the new administration isn't going to be able to avoid. And then hanging over all of this is this global pandemic, which has all sorts of trade aspects that need to be addressed within it. I mean, one of the big questions we're clearly going to have to watch carefully is what happens with distribution of a vaccine and who gets the vaccine? Do we see this vaccine nationalism erupt that some people are worried about? And what might that mean for trading relationships? So, I mean, it's been a busy time. We may not get the same focus on trade policy that we have had in the last four years in the year or two to come, but there's still plenty there. So, Sean, I've been covering and following your coverage around trade since you took on your various assignments. And as you've been covering these, one of the discussions that it's fairly perennial are discussions about globalization. There's certainly some who suggest that we're facing the death of globalization. Some people would uh, applaud that, others decry that. I'd love to get your perspectives on globalization, but what do you think the issues are that are tied up in this that we might be missing? Yeah, so I think the first thing that I think about when I think about globalization is we often mischaracterize it as a policy decision, right? There's this idea that there was a globalization switch that policymakers switched on in the early 1990s. And ever since then, we've been on this path, which has had both positive and negative consequences and so on. I just think that's the wrong framing. I don't think globalization is a policy decision. I think globalization is a force, and it's a force that's been with us for thousands of years. If you read back through history, it's pretty apparent that from the dawn of humanity, humans wanted to trade and they wanted to explore and they wandered and got to know other people and that that's been with us. There is no greater product of globalization than the world's major religions, for example. Christianity is a product of globalization, at least it's spread through the world. The same with Islam. I spent time in Indonesia. Islam landed in Indonesia at the tip of Sumatra 500 or so years ago on boats with traders who were coming out of the Middle East. So I think that the first point I would make about globalization is we need to reframe our thinking and recognizing that this is a force, it's not a policy choice. 
The second point is that we are often obsessed with the trade in goods when we think about globalization. And that just is, it feels increasingly removed from reality. Robert, you've done a lot of work in the digital trade sphere. And it's so clear that what is happening on the internet, what my kids are doing when they switch on their Xbox and they start playing Fortnite, when what my daughter is doing when she gets on TikTok, what we're doing right now in terms of having this conversation across the internet, these are all products and manifestations of globalization as well. There's this whole digital side. Then there's the trade and services, then there is immigration, then there's just the simple mix of cultures that has been happening through the millennia, really. So I think that would be my second point. The third point is, it's clear that we have in the last four years finally started to get our heads around this idea that actually not everyone benefits from globalization. And I was up in Huron, Ohio recently talking to some folks who were being laid off or had been laid off by an auto parts plant. The shutdown of that plant was the result of a shift in production to Mexico by one of the big car companies. And that was still happening in 2020. But what was really apparent was that in 2020, we still hadn't learned the lessons of 2016. And these people weren't going to get treated any differently from people who were losing their jobs in 2016 or beforehand as a result of factories moving and corporate decisions, that the safety net had not changed in any way. In other words, that globalization and its impacts were marching on and these people were being left behind and losing jobs that they had spent 20 plus years doing in some cases. And so I think the globalization is never gonna die. What needs to change is the way governments cope with the impact of globalization and help people ride out the impact of globalization. And I'm just not sure that conversation, while we were having it, I don't think it's yet yielded any practical solutions. And I think that's a real issue going forward. Yeah, I think that's a great observation, Sean. And I think for too long, trade was talked about sort of in this terms of opportunity, and, and certainly there is vast opportunity in it, but the kind of dislocations that happen from trade or really that happen a lot from technology are ones that we've not well addressed. I mean, I think as you've written about this, I mean, it strikes for me that it's issues around income inequality, racial injustice and equity, domestic investments. How have you seen the conversation change in your reporting? And you express some reservations about, or maybe concerns, about whether these are issues that is likely to be tackled. How are you picking up folks talking about this in, in your writing and looking ahead? Yeah, I think one of the things that people haven't latched on to enough and some people have, but I don't think enough people are latching on to this, is that you can't separate trade and its impacts out from other issues. And there is a link oftentimes on the negative side when a community is impacted to a factory moving. For example, it's clear that that can have an immediate and tough impact on a community. But there are all these other things around there that have to do with things like automation, that have to do with even things like housing discrimination 
and education that really get at how a community adapts to these kinds of things. I spent part of my summer going back and forth between Washington and Cleveland and spending time on the east side of Cleveland. It was a real privilege over the last few months to be able to focus on some domestic economic reporting rather than trade policy or internationally focused reporting. And if you go into the predominantly Black communities on the east side of Cleveland, you discover that there's a trade story there and an economic change story there. There's no doubt that in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, they were losing manufacturing jobs and that that has had an impact on the communities there. But then there's also a story that meshes with that of systemic racism and the real hard impact on the housing market there, that redlining and decades of discrimination against African-American buyers of homes had on these communities. And there's a related problem with the education system there locally. There's a problem, even though you've got the Cleveland Clinic, this world-leading institution there, there's a problem with healthcare and access to healthcare and just overall wellness there. You can go into the zip code right next to the Cleveland Clinic and discover that people have a life expectancy that is 20 years shorter than those who live a 10 or 15 minute drive away in a more affluent neighborhood. Those all mesh together. Trade policy, tariffs, not negotiating a trade deal or negotiating a trade deal differently isn't going to change those economic realities, those social realities on the ground on the east side of Cleveland. And yet you can't deny at the same time that trade and economic change had a role as well in what has happened in those communities. And so I think there's been an awakening in the United States over the last year, another awakening, a reminder of the inequities, the, the racial inequities here in the United States. But you need to think about how you address those through all sorts of different policies. And it's hard to, I think often what we've seen in the last four years is it's very easy to blame one thing, whether it's trade or immigration, as President Trump has. It's harder to formulate policy that actually addresses things that need to be addressed. Thank you for speaking to that and covering it. Really thoughtful, Sean. Appreciate that. And Sean, picking up on that, I really value your description because there's this recognition to reconcile sort of domestic and international issues. And I think COVID's really highlighted one thing I think we're all unified in terms of a global outlook is the vaccine. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on the development of the vaccine and the global effort, because I think that's one thing we all know. Everybody has a stakeholder and really wants to make this work going forward. Yeah, look, I think we've had this, if we look at this pandemic, it has been a horrifying episode, obviously, because of the cost of life that's 250,000 people dead in the United States, more than a million around the world. These are horrifying numbers and they're hard to grasp. But I think one of the things that, that's been really interesting this year, for those of us who think about globalization, is that it has it's tested a lot of our assumptions about globalization, and it should be causing us to rethink some of our approaches in terms of the approach to supply chains. It's clear that there are certain things that governments may want to force some kind of localization of or address 
a way of having a more robust supply chain for them. I mean, thinking about N95 masks, other forms of personal protective equipment, and so on. You need to be better at whether it's through stockpiling things better or having manufacturing capacity that you can quickly ramp up. Something needs to change there. And I think a lot of governments and people around the world are going to take that lesson. But that kind of feels like the lesson from the first six months of the pandemic, which was one lesson about globalization. And then there's the lesson from the vaccine episode. And one of the things that's fascinating is when you kind of scratch the surface and you look at these vaccines that are being developed, whether it's the Pfizer or the Moderna or the AstraZeneca, the Oxford University vaccine, all of them in their own ways speak to the benefits of globalization in terms of their development. The Pfizer vaccine is the result of an arrangement with a German company, I think it's called BioNTech. BioNTech, there's been some fascinating interviews with the founders of the company who happen to be immigrants, who say that in January, they very quickly realized that they needed to address this even before some governments did. So it was a company in Germany that did this. And that the relationship with Pfizer came about because there was an introduction made at one point to a German executive who was working for Pfizer. And out of that relationship between a German company and a German executive at Pfizer, here was this alliance. And they were the, I believe they're going to be one of the first out of the gate in getting this vaccine out into the market. Moderna is a company based on the outskirts of Boston. Again, it's headed up, it was found by two immigrants. If you look at the Oxford University vaccine, it is not just an Oxford product, and it's an Oxford product that draws on the expertise of researchers from around the world who are there in Oxford, but also has alliances with Italian companies who are also working with Indian companies. AstraZeneca is involved in that and has set up production sites around the world, each with their own supply chains to deploy this vaccine around the world when it happens. There's a lot of fear out there right now about the possibility of vaccine nationalism that the United States or another country may insist that it gets access first to a vaccine when it happens. But at the same time, the system that created this vaccine in some ways is already hedging against that or preparing against that possibility. And so you have, if you look at the last year in this pandemic, which is a global event, you have seen globalization and its upsides and downsides manifested in all sorts of different ways. And that takes us to the next question, and that is, is globalization going to work? And are these supply chains going to work in terms of getting this vaccine out, not just here in the United States, but importantly to other countries around the world, in particular, those poorer countries that don't have the resources or the economic strength to insist that they're at the front of the line in the same way that the United States has. So, Sean, is there anything we've missed that you'd like to talk about today? I think one of the big questions for me going forward is how we see Joe Biden's clear emphasis on strengthening the domestic U.S. economy play out with trade policy in the future. Donald Trump called it America first. Joe Biden may call it a version of worker first. And that clearly is a great message in an election year. The question I always have is, 
when do we move and how do we move from those kinds of messages and policy proposals that are meant above all just to grab votes or secure votes rather than actually be hard policy. Let's see how that translates into actual governing. I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to watch, and that's going to really impact America's place in the world. There's a lot of people out there outside of America right now who are coming out of the last four years suspicious of America and its engagement in the global economy. I wonder where we're going to be four years from now and whether we'll see a re-engagement or whether we'll see a different form of policy that's driven above all by domestic considerations and a focus on the domestic economy. And part of that is natural. We're in a crisis right now. The economy's in bad shape. You need to clean up the house and you need to shore up the foundations. But it's going to be really interesting to watch. So, Sean, we thank you for being here with us today. We like to conclude, Nicole and I always do, with a question for our guests. It's sort of personal to you, and it's one that we always love getting the answer to. So what book are you currently reading? Or please share a little food for thought about that or other things that you're paying attention to as we wrap up. Yeah. So, I mean, I have tried very hard not to read too much that is related to work in terms of books this year, although there's been some good ones in the trade and foreign policy sphere. So right now I'm reading a nice, slim little book called A Month in Siena by Hisham Matar, which is, it is what the title says. It's the author moves to Siena for a month and dives into Sienese school paintings. And it is just a wonderful, elegant meditation on things that I know nothing about. Very interesting. Thank you so much. This has been so wonderful to spend some time with you and to get your firsthand views on what's going on in the world of trade and everything that we are thinking in terms of the next administration. So thank you. We really value your thoughts and opinion. Thank you, Sean. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. Thanks for listening to Global Trade Talks, brought to you by Kroll & Mooring. You can access more information about our guests today in our show notes, or at kroll.com slash global trade talks. You can find all our episodes and subscribe to our series on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.